Digital Drift, Episode 8, recorded Tuesday, 25th of March 2014, Rihanna Pratchett. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. Welcome back to Digital Drift. We're very excited to have with us tonight the very talented and renowned writer, Rihanna Pratchett, and we're going to skip the preamble and get straight down to business. Rihanna, hello and welcome. Hello there. Going into as much detail as possible as to why, which would you say your favourite three characters that you've written for? Well, that's a tricky one because you always have to kind of um, love your characters uh, at least a little bit, even the bad ones, especially the bad ones. Um and by that I mean evil rather than and, than badly written, hopefully. Um, so I think my first one would probably be Noriko. Yeah. From Heavenly Sword. Um, and, and she was probably the first really big character I got my hands on. Um, I'd, I'd done a little bit of bits and pieces of games writing before I got got that gig, but, but sort, of, sort of small level stuff. So I'd started out as a story editor for Beyond Divinity, mm-hmm. I did some level dialogue for a Spongebob game. I did level dialogue for a Pac-Man game. And, and then I think I'd, the biggest game I'd done to date was mission mission dialogue for um, Stronghold Legends. Mm-hmm. And I met um, the creative director, um, Tamim, um, the creative director of Ninja Theory, that is, Tamim, uh, at an IGDA lecture in London. And he was talking about how difficult it was to um, get... Uh, Heavenly Sword in, into into development and get a publishing deal for it. And I met to me um, uh, like a, a couple of months earlier on a screenwriting course. And, and uh, Heavenly Sword had just been announced, and I sort of so I knew a little bit about it and talked to him a bit about it. And then I, again, I, again, I met him at the IGDA lecture, and I, I'd had a couple of, of uh, Jack and Diet Cokes, and I was feeling a bit kind of uh, bullshy. And so I was asking about the writing on the game and, and who was doing that, and it turned out that they hadn't found a writer yet they'd gone through uh one round of trying to find writers hadn't found anyone and mm-hmm. you know I, I was uh uh full of dutch courage and i said oh well you, you know can you possibly consider me could you send me a test next time you you do a round of um you know writer searching and and he said oh yeah yeah sure sure and i thought god that's the last i'm gonna hear from him and then four months later uh, someone from Sony got in contact with me and sent me a writing test over Christmas, mm-hmm. and I, I sort of put it together. Um, and actually, my the scene I did for for Nariko for that um, wasn't actually ever in the game, wasn't ever actually intended to be in the game, but sort of helped set things up. It's actually been one of my favourite scenes from Heavenly Sword that was never in the game, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's actually been one that I sent out as, as a sample. But one of the, the reasons I, I enjoyed writing Narika, and especially her, her relationship with Kai yeah. as well, which was really, really such a central motivation for her character, was the idea of what warriors have to, to give up to, to, lead, to lead a warrior life. And um, this was kind of taken from um, a Conan movie. Like, it, it, uh, no kidding, Conan and Aliens, knowledge of Conan and Aliens has helped me get jobs in the games industry nice. I'm not kidding so <laughs> all the movies I, I watched during during the 80s have, have really sort of helped me um, us too <laughs> <laughs> so all the, all the developers of um, 
uh, you know, we kind of watch similar stuff. But there, I'm actually kind of looking this up online um, as I'm as I'm telling you this. Um, Say a the, Conan movie. Do you mean the oh, Conan yeah. movie or one of the terrible <laughs> ones that followed afterwards? Well, there's only two, there's only two that I really count as a Conan movie. There's <laughs> Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer. Yeah. Um, and well, I I think there's some good point. There, there are some good things about Conan. Destroyer. Really. Yeah. I've got to go back and watch that one then. It's Grace I, Jones. I remember to, yeah, okay. Grace Jones, for example. Zula was, was that name? Uh, that was Zula, yeah. Um, and she's good in it. Um, I actually quite like um, the relationship between Conan and Malik, who is his um, kind of thief thief sidekick, and they have a nice sort of Fafford and the Grey Mouser kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nowhere near as good as the first one, which had James L. Jones and, and, and stuff. Marco. And who, sorry? Uh, make a long ago when the oh, seas claimed Atlantis. <laughs> Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And on to this, Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Yeah, I, I have that puzzle, uh, Basil Polidorus soundtrack, actually. That mm-hmm. kind of... <laughs> I'll get you up in the morning. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I'm just looking it up now because I want to find the right quote for you. And I'm always paraphrasing it and I want to kind of get it right. It's astonishing that you love Conan. If you've ever listened to the John Milius and Arnold Schwarzenegger commentary on that film, it's just... it. It's one of the most sexist things in the world. I was getting later, lad, than this movie. Huh? I know. It was amazing. All of a sudden, he has to listen to the women problems. Even then, in this prehistoric times, women were already in the jewelry, huh? Yeah. But the worst was Grace Jones and Conan, too. Really? Oh, she damaged more people than you can think of. Mm. She's gorgeous. Yeah, she's really good here. Terrible waste to throw her over, huh? I would say. Another waste. We kill so much beauty in this movie. Oh, this is where the orgy. Yeah. I remember she was like, totally sweating and oiled up. Yeah, but on the other hand, that the, especially the first Conan, <clears throat> you had Valeria, who, who uh, was with the sort of barbarian thief. The Valkyrie. Um, well, I don't know if she was a Valkyrie. Though. They said about 20 times in the film, so they thought she was. But yeah, I completely get she was a little bit. When I saw Sandal, I fell in love. I mean, Sandal is a Valkyrie, but she's a Valkyrie. So that she becomes a Valkyrie. There she is as a Valkyrie. And if you believe that, he also believed there are Richard Simmons Jr.'s running around. <laughs> that is funny. They made her turn up towards the end in like a shiny sparkly costume yeah like a disco valkyrie yeah yeah but she doesn't look like a valkyrie most of the time she just looks like a sort of a a female conan yeah yeah. um an equal yeah and and she is you know there's some she gets some great lines that you know um do you want to live forever kind of lines and there is a great uh little sequence in that where obviously she falls in love with Conan he wants to go after Thulsa Doom and avenge his family and she's kind of got something that um, uh, like she's never had before in her life and I'm just trying to find the I really want to find the right quote for you 
I'm glad you're doing this because I do exactly the same thing. I I, uh, I can always edit this out in the actual um, edit part, but whenever I want to get something right, I don't go, oh, it was something like I got it. Yeah, I, I'm always paraphrasing it, and I just say as I've got the internet in front of me. It's because I've listened to enough podcasts where people give a sort of, I'm not sure it's something like this, and I'm shouting the actual right answer at them yeah, on, on the bus, getting funny looks. All right, I'm just assuming you're going to cut this bit out. I'm oh, bearing quotes. I will say while you're okay, talking. Right, I've got it now. Okay, okay. Yeah. okay so so this is the, this is the Conan quote that, that I remembered, and it was in my um, interview uh, about Heavenly Sword, and I was talking about what it means to be a warrior, and this quote sort of came into my mind, um, and it's when she's she's uh, she's fallen in love with Conan. He's all after um, Salsa Doom, take take revenge on him for, for wiping his village, killing his mother and father, etc., etc. And she's she's discovered something she's never never had before, and she and she sort of makes a plea for him to to basically turn away, and, and and you know stay with her, have lots of sweaty barbarian sex, and you know kind of enjoy themselves, and not go on what she thinks is a death mission. Um, and she says, um, all my life I've been alone. Many times I've faced my death with no one to know. I would look into the huts and the tents of others in the coldest dark and I would see figures holding each other in the night. And I always passed by. I thought that's what it means to be a warrior, is to give up that human connection, the human emotions, and to live life as an outsider and and not get that that sense of love and and community and belonging with another person. And that's what um, I felt Narika was like to, to start with. She'd been... Her tribe had been sort of ostracised, and she'd been almost ostracised from her tribe, and she'd always tried to be this sort of stoic, good warrior figure, good daughter, good warrior, and she never sort of let let herself feel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as she actually sort of sacrificed her life to the sword, as she became closer to death, she actually learned how to live more. Yeah. And, you know, kind of embraced her, her emotions, and she you know, kind of went through a whole sort of arc trying to kind of work out a few things along the way and that was quite you know very interesting for me and quite satisfying I really liked doing the relationship with her father and her relationship with Kai as well so she was kind of really the first character I could um, really get my teeth into all my life I've had a recurring dream In my dream, I see my father. He is standing above me. He raises the sword above his head. I try to call out to him and tell him to stop, but the sword strikes down. The second one would be Null from the Overlord games. 
Um, not because he, he you know, for, for, the, for completely different reasons from Noriko, actually, because he was just so much fun to write for. Um, and because I became good friends after the Overlord games with Mark Silk, who, who voices Narl and a lot of the, uh, the, the other minions as well and some of the other voices in the game. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of so much fun to work with and, and, um, we directed him via Skype as well, so we had these really fun kind of directing sessions with him. Um, and it was, yeah, it was purely because it was such a such a great voice, such good fun, um, such a great project all round. Really, it was um, quite. I developed it very closely with with Triumph, and I worked with the the level designers very closely, sort of developing the scripts for their levels. Um, and I wouldn't say, you know, Nolly's just fun. He's it's just pure fun, kind of naughty evil. Uh, and I, I, yeah, it was just joyful, I think, for, um, for, for me writing him. The boy needs a proper evil upbringing. And whilst evil was nurtured in the bowels of the earth, in its absence came the rise of a new age, a new power. And thus began the reign of the glorious empire. Everyone was happy. And those who weren't were killed, enslaved, or had other nasty things done to them. And I guess the third would have to be Lara Croft, really. Um, because, you know, it was really was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know, especially as I'd written for, for characters like Noriko, Kai, and Faith in the past, it felt like... Yep, this is this is what it's all been leading up to, yeah. um, and you know, getting getting hold, hold of a, a such a famous female character who was British as well. Um, that was a lot of that was a lot of fun as well. Um, you know, I always joke that you know when Crystal were looking around for um, a writer, they uh, they they thought, oh yeah, okay, Rihanna Rihanna Pratchett. Um, British, brown hair, bit geeky, possible father issues. <laughs> That's the one we'll go for. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, Laura was a lot of fun. And obviously, with the reboot and the kind of reimagining of her, it, it did give me a chance to sort of get my teeth into to Laura and, and develop um, sides of the character that I thought maybe hadn't been explored in the past. You know, where, where she'd come from and, and, and kind of what she was before she had all the guns and the gadgets and the witty one-liners and so there was a lot lot of meat to to get my teeth into with her I think several years ago when we did uh, top 50 video game characters of all time as voted for by our community which was then called the Digital Cowboys um, I remember we were we were getting people's testimonials to talk about the characters and uh, like one person talked about a character I was ashamed to be on the list and that was Duke Nukem and this is before Duke Nukem Forever came out and I fairly controversially kicked him off the list bodily while we were podcasting and said right enough of that this is uh, pardon the phrase bullshit Um, some characters who got some votes but didn't get onto the final uh, list I am bodily putting them on there in place of Duke Nukem right. and it was Kai and Noriko and okay. I, I, I pleaded their case and said right um, this is why Kai and Noriko are valid characters and I got into an actual argument with Duke Nukem himself in the actual podcast as a bit of a skit but I seem to remember when we got to Lara Croft because of course she was on there and this is prior to the, the reboot mm. that I said wouldn't it be great to get a Lara Croft with the kind of writing that you got with Heavenly Sword so thank you for that. Oh, okay. It all came together for you. Yeah. 
Well, that was a great show in the end, but um, I, I hope I sold a few more copies of the Heavenly Sword as a result <laughs> of the, uh, the the kickoff. And I was right about Duke Nukem as well, and I stand by that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, like back in the day, he was kind of fun, mm. um, but then then again, the kind of the kind of Duke, there was a lot of Duke Nukem lights that came afterwards, and that kind of irreverent one-liner kind of Mr. Quippy type of uh, you know character writing did get used a lot in, in the past um, yeah. so yeah I much prefer Nariko and Kai well of course <laughs> and as did we as a podcast in general um, Sharon I'll, I'll let you ask the next question because um, I've been muttering too much so you go for it okay fair enough uh, so moving on to the next question Rihanna, what do you feel are the main elements that distinguish writing for games from writing for other media? I guess that the first thing would be that it's not really about telling a story to a passive audience. It's about creating a story around them and then taking them on a journey. Um, Therefore, the player, whether they're they're playing as a character like Lara or Alan Wake or someone, or they're role playing in a more traditional sense, um, kind of you know Mass Effect or M Ship or Dragon Age or what have you, um, they're they're kind of always the star of the story, and and to a certain extent they're they're kind of the equivalent of your lead actor or actress, and they're also not always in your control as well, which makes it. Um, uh, extra special really um, and so narrative kind of has to adapt to the player and, and sometimes their play style uh, and so so you're always trying to craft the narrative in games around the player and keep keep them in mind um, and you know create a narrative that, that reflects the way they play um, Ken Levine uh, talked about with Bioshock that the idea of a golden path of narrative and, and of different stages outside the golden path so with Bioshock they designed a sort of central narrative where players who just wanted to kind of breeze through shooting things and didn't really care that much about story could could go through it and they could kind of have a good idea of what was happening and then players that wanted to kind of you know get, come off the golden path a bit could, could do so and they'd get narratively rewarded they, they'd understand the characters a bit more um and then they'd kind of understand the world and then for the, the kind of um exploratory players which which uh, you know was, was myself included they could kind of poke around in all the corners of the world yeah. find the, all, the, all the tapes or you know all the bits and pieces and really build up quite a complex picture of the world and so that sort of allowed for different la- layers of narrative to to cater for um different play styles which are you know absolutely unique to games obviously um also when, with games writing you actually have to be aware of Things like budget and, and processing power in a way that you wouldn't really with, with film writing, oh, for example. Sure. Even what writing cutscene, which would, would seem like the most traditionally writerly bit, mm. you still have to take into consideration um, the, the kind of the processing power and, and the budget in terms of you can't do a writer scene with lots of uh, characters or, or huge crowds if the engine you're writing for can't render them or can't render them very well uh, or it takes up too much memory to do so or you know you have to be aware that there, there are certain things that are, are difficult to animate in games and therefore take up more time therefore take up more budget things like um, smoke steam um, touching cloth is, is another one as well water is another one and they're all kind of animation intensive therefore tend to be budget intensive and this is often why you'll you'll see 
characters in in games, and you can you can look for it, it, it that have their mouth covered for uh, inexplicable reasons oh, because um, they don't want to have to <laughs> they don't want to have to animate lips, um, uh, which which it actually is the most expensive facial uh, animation is the most expensive thing in games really to one one done well and that's actually the opposite of movies so movies you know the cheapest thing you can do is just someone talking Mm -hmm. and the most expensive thing you can do is is you know buildings exploding all over the place in games it's much cheaper to do buildings exploding because you know once you build the building you can explode it as you know as many times as you like really But just having people talking and giving nuanced expressions suddenly yeah, yeah, mu- much, it extends much the project by months. That explains all those incredibly coy Final Fantasy characters who hide their mouths behind their hands. Or so express bad, themselves or by a like fist pump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, uh, yeah, it, you can't, once you know what it'll look for, you, you, you can spot it popping up in games. You and... may have broken games for us, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I, I guess because it's still a relatively young entertainment medium when compared to the others, mm-hmm. um, sort of getting our heads around how to tell the stories in games is still is still very much evolving. When I got into the industry, well, when I first got into the industry in '98, as a journalist, I spent about you know two or three years um, as a journalist, and then sort of slowly moving into development. When I moved into to development in, in 2002, um, the kind of question, the narrative question was, should we use professional writers? Which it seemed ludicrous to me because it's like, well, you use professional artists, professional programmers. Why would you put something in your game that's not been done by people who are trained uh, to do that? And over the, the kind of decade that I've been involved, the industry has gone, well, okay, then we'll use... What were their reasons for... Did they actually give you any reasons uh, in, in the past of, of why they might hold out on that? Are there downsides to getting professional writers on? Or Well, I think they don't know what to do with them sometimes. Um, and that's kind of been, once they moved on to professional writers knowing what to do with them mm. and, and the writers themselves knowing how they should be used um, it, it, that's kind of what the industry is still wrestling with so there, there obviously have been people that have written for games you know, throughout the, the time there's been writing for games but um, they weren't normally doing this kind of thing I'm doing now talk, you know, getting out there, talking to people about, you know, the characters to create the worlds they create, what goes right, what goes wrong how to not as front facing yeah, there was just yeah. yeah, they were in a back a dark back room <laughs> cupboard. allowed out to, to, to um interact with people. Uh and obviously that's that's changed a lot over, over the years. Um you know, we have now got things like the writers guild supporting games writing with mm-hmm. awards and things like that. You've got um you know, the narrative the GDC narrative conference and things like that. So it's evolved a lot but, but as a whole the narrative literacy in the industry is quite low when compared to other entertainment forms. And so we're kind of all trying to get our heads around uh, storytelling games, the different ways of doing it, um, and the, the, the po- you know the, the positives and negatives of, of each different way. And so that's um, that's that's kind of what's happening at the moment. You do have your big your big guys coming in, um, you know the, the the Last of Us, the Bioshock Infinite, that that kind of have writers in charge, and they you know they're doing great things. And, and likewise in the indie space, things like Thomas Was Alone mm-hmm. or Papers Please are doing really interesting things with narrative. Mm-hmm. But there's a big middle ground that's still sort of floundering and trying to work out what to what to do and how to kind of utilise 
the story, you know, the storytelling that, that AAA has with the, the kind of innovation of um, of indie, and still, you know, they don't get the budget of, of the, the AAA, and they don't necessarily get the freedom of indie. So I think there's a lot. There's some interesting stuff stuff happening at both ends, but there's a lot of not quite knowing what to do in the middle. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the kind of middle ground is sort of searching for a way of distinguishing distinguishing itself um, at the moment. So, yeah, we're still we're still all kind of learning. And as my uh, fellow games writer Jim Swallow um, likes to say, there are no maps for these territories. And so everyone is is kind of learning. Developers are learning how to work with writers, how to work with narrative designers, how to incorporate them into a team. And likewise, writers are coming to understand, you know, why why designers might be arguing against some narrative, you know, going into this section of the game, or you know, why why they why they want this mechanic. And and so writers will kind of understand, you know, how how they they need to be used, what questions to ask, what communication loops to to um, sort out and so everyone yeah it's interesting times for that reason i think but it's heading in the right direction from the sounds of it yes yeah it's 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 still it's still not industry-wide you know there's still a lot of places that don't use professional writers that just decide to do stuff on staff however there are a lot more um writers coming in-house actually i say that's probably more on the increase than what i do which is which is more of a hired gun type of role um so that it's certainly over the last decade it's in, increased a lot and now we're just sort of working out the best practices I guess yeah I suppose if you compared the uh, the just this on power of the scripts of the most recent narrative driven games versus say 2004's narrative driven games that it's going to be a fairly huge leap oh absolutely I mean I think everyone now has their favourite narrative games that they can point to, like whether it's Portal or The Last of Us, um, or you know Psychonauts in my case, uh, or Bloodlines, uh, Vampire Bloodlines, which is another favourite one of mine. Um, you know, everyone has that that kind of touchstone now for, yeah. for something they really in, enjoy. And I'd say, sort of, ten years ago, that might not have been the case like people thought may, maybe stories weren't important or you know they've been used to getting not very good ones and so they'd sort of um, de- desensitize themselves to it and, you know in the past publishers genuinely thought that story wasn't important it didn't contribute to sales and i think that's being proved to be wrong well i'm looking at some of the um best games of 2004 in a list here and the three at the top that i found that are narrative driven half-life 2 which is excellent back in its day. Yep. Still holds up today. Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay, surprisingly good. Better than the Riddick movie, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, of which GTA V is now eons better than. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely improving on that side of things. So it, maybe it wasn't too bad that long ago, but there's definitely more thought-provoking games now, I believe, than there were... Oh yeah, I mean that, those, those are very, very, very good examples. I mean, for a long time, people were pointing to Half Life Two as being the the big, mm. that's the one, <laughs> or, or Portal actually. You know, Valve, you know, Valve were were the kings of that, and yeah. and I think that their sort of crown has been maybe shuffled over to Naughty Dog or or shuffled between. Well, not doing anything for years yeah. will do so that. that. <laughs> yeah, um, shuffled between kind of Naughty Dog and and. Um, uh, irrational, I think. I mean, oh, maybe Ninja Theory. You could possibly put them down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with the, I, 
I've not played um, Devil May Cry, but I've heard yeah. good things about it. And Did I, you play I, Enslaved? Also, yeah, uh, I, I enjoyed Tony Addis. Enjoyed. That was Alex Garland, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, that's that's been a, an example of Hollywood writer coming in and, and really sort of becoming very involved in the project and, and you know. Con- you know, contributing very well, whereas you know I've heard lots of horror stories about sort of so-called Hollywood writers being used, and and you know they've burnt all the budget, and they've not been able to to do the job that was needed. And some poor poor games writer has had to come in at the end with a, you know and had to do the work for half a potato, and oh, you know, have to kind of uh, mangle it all together. Really, that's tragic. Yeah. That's not something to throw out with with the bathwater. No, um, I think it is again. It's this this getting to getting to um, understand how writers work and how writing works and it's not just a case of oh let's get someone from Hollywood in because then they will bring their magic pixie dust and swing <laughs> and we'll be fine um, and there was a vogue for that and I think it might be and I say Alex Garland is, is the um, success story for that although you know Enslaved didn't sell massively uh, it, did, it did pretty okay with the reviews quite well um, and I know I think one of the CODs and I and I kind of get confused about where they are number wise um, I think they the COD had the, the writer of, of uh, Dark Knight Returns I think doing stuff for them maybe it was the Ghosts one um, Dark, Dark Knight Returns as in Frank Miller um, do you mean Rises Rises, rises, rises. Oh, oh duty bear with me one second carry on um, it was Call of Duty Ghosts, apparently. Yeah, and they they had a big sort of Hollywood person coming in, um, and I don't think Ghosts did that well. So um, I don't know how much that was was down to the story, but it's probably down to at least partly how writers get used and um, and how it gets integrated with gameplay, really. Uh, what well, for? Um what order does it usually take place in? I think I, I, um, I should already know this one, but do, do they bring in the writer after a lot of the assets have already been done, after the basic story has already been fleshed out, and, and the writer puts fancy words to the otherwise basic utilitarian stick block words that they've already got, or, or what? It does depend, really, um, in that... that- that's kind of how it used to be done, and to a certain extent, that's still the case. But the the assets that you will have to work with as a writer can change depending on the type of game it is, uh, what time you've been brought in, and, and how um, seriously the, the team takes narrative. So often you will come in, and there will be some bits there. I always talk about like it's a, um, a like a Doctor Frankenstein's box of body parts, which is sort of pushed across the table to you narrative body parts and then you're never quite sure what's in the box right you've got to make a monster out of them and make make sure it kind of it sort of you know walks and talks and doesn't savage small children and that kind of thing Um, let me just um, uh, amend what I said earlier it was David S. Goya a writer of uh, Batman Begins Batman Begins okay I knew it was one of Batman's yep uh, and uh, he did Call of Duty Black Ops and Black Ops 2 okay so carry on Maybe it was. I thought there was someone on Ghost. There was someone big on Ghost. I, I don't Let me know. Check. Uh, so you were talking about a Frankenstein's monster. Oh, oh yeah. The, sorry. The, yeah. The, the, well, Very evocative uh, image you were putting out there. Frankenstein's box of narrative body parts. Um, and so, I mean, for example, with Tomb Raider, they had a synopsis of the of, of the story. 
they knew they wanted to set it on um, Yamatai. They had they'd done a bit of bio work on uh, specifically Lara and Ross. They had um, a little bit for other characters, and then they had some visuals. That so so sort of Alex Reyes, Grimm, and Jonah existed as visuals first, and then they came up with a, a, a little bit of character for them. And then my job was to sort of fill everything out, re- redo all the characters and their relationships and things like that, mm-hmm. keeping the same visuals, um, and just sort of you know fold in um, you know uh, Reyes's uh, backstory as a, as a cop in New York or. Alex's kind of back story. Um, so and add, add the substance to the characters that were already established. Yeah, put the flesh on the bones, really, and then sort of fill it out. Uh, take the take the synopsis, turn it into um, the game writing equivalent of uh, treatment, which can get called many things, but we call it what do we call it? <laughs> the meta script. That's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, meta script, and that that's sort of a little bit like a treatment, um, and that usually fleshes out. Each scene goes flashes out each scene how how and an animation intensive it is how long it is etc uh, and then on to kind of a script that I mean we did it in a traditional a, a traditional three act structure even though it kind of you know games aren't really three act structures they're sort of more like t- TV shows in some ways so um, but we just kind of wrote it in three acts for for kind of neatness and. And because of the way that the different levels are being developed, um, and so yeah, usually, I mean, with, with, you know, I've, I've spoken about in Mirror's Edge in the past. Uh, the whole game was was designed by the time they got me on board, and that was because they hadn't been able to find a writer, um, and so they had to be they had to keep doing something. So they were sort of building levels that they thought were cool, and there was no sort of narrative linking in them and therefore my job I had to go back and work with what was there mechanics wise and level design wise and create a story around that so it is kind of like um, you know trying to write a movie when all the sets have been built for you know sets have been built that people thought were cool rather than because that's what was needed for the story so it's kind of a very weird backwards way of working Um, work with what you've got rather than sort of being the god in your own Oh yeah, world. absolutely. And it's just like that, that that what you've got can change from project to project. So I, this is how I coined the term narrative paramedic. Um, nice. <laughs> I think that was my my term. I should have copyrighted it somewhere, like you know David Freeman copyrighted emotioneering. Um, I actually immortalised it onto onto a pin badge. I don't know if that counts as copywriting, but I made um, little pin badges that say narrative paramedic and story robot. Nice. And I give them to my game writing friends or anyone in games writing, like Amy Hennig, Tim Schafer, they've all got my badges. Um, not that they're really story robots or narrative paramedics, but it's just my way of sort of mocking how the industry can be through lapelware. So anyone who's had to put a syringe full of adrenaline into the heart of an otherwise inert game and bring it back to screaming life. Yeah. They get, they get a pin. Yeah, they get, they get a badge. Um, definitely. Uh, it's, it's very it's very very hard to do for that reason because you're not in at the genesis of of a game um yeah you you do sometimes think oh wow if you'd only got me in like a year earlier what i could have brought to it and stuff but again it's getting developers used to working with writers and sometimes they just don't know how to incorporate them into the early process uh or they don't know where to find one or they don't know where to find the right one 
Um, and so you, you can see why they've kind of looked at like Hollywood and stuff to, you know, the, the, to, to try and sort of fill in the gaps, but it doesn't really work that well. You work for Hollywood? You're used to being decked around? Come and yeah. hustle again. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but even, even having worked in film, the, the level of dicking around is, is, higher than yeah they don't have it sussed either why they <laughs> would yeah, it, yeah. It, does, it does make you quite robust actually working games um because the level of dicking around is so enormous that it yeah. sort of it toughens you up for everything else i think this segues so neatly into our next question okay go for it it's given supreme power how would you change the way and you can think of many ways if you like the way writing is currently handled in the games industry um I think I'd uh, get more writers in charge. Nice. Um, but, you know, make sure they were writers that had a good design ethic as well. And I a mean, good grasp of what what it takes to put a project together rather yeah. than just, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, mo- the biggest successes we've had from narrative games, uh, if you look at um, Bioshock Infinite, last yeah. GTA 5, for example. Writers in charge of things. <laughs> you know, what, what they might not be the supreme uh, in charge on the project, obviously Ken Levine is, um, but, you know, Amy Henry with Uncharted and Neil Druckmann with The Last of Us, you know, Neil was the creative director of the project and wrote everything and directed everything yeah. um, and so had, you know, was, was pulling a lot of strings, whereas writers are very much kind of small cogs um, usually in in a, in a big machine, um, trying to fight fight their battles um, as best they can with every other single department. Usually, who are ranked way above writers, um, you know, fight fighting their battles, and they have much bigger weapons. Um, and so, I, I would kind of put more writers in charge because uh, I'd be interested. I think you know, I I think there could be some really interesting things coming out of that. And I think writers in charge has. Not, I'm not necessarily saying myself, but I think that has, um, because, you know, being in charge of things I find somewhat scary, so I'm, I'm quite happy for other people to do it. Um, but it, it's produced good results in, in the past. Absolutely. Even people like that, like Ragnar Tornquist as well. Um, you know, writers do need more power, um, and they, they need to, more power and agency, uh, and that's kind of what is, is lacking in the game. There's sort of, and and to be involved earlier um you know it doesn't necessarily have to be you know right in the room day one but but early enough that they can you know work for if they're a contractor like me work for a a few weeks on the project helping a a developer flesh out a pitch for example i mean that um you don't often get writers being hired for that kind of work um i've only been asked to do it do it once um although they, it sort of fell through for various uh, reasons but actually working on the pitch stage of a game writers and narrative designers could be really really useful so get them in earlier then yeah yeah i mean I, you, that's one thing that, that all games writers will agree on is that actually the earlier you're got in mm. whether you're embedded whether you're a contractor like me is the the more you can do actually it doesn't it doesn't mean everything's going to go right because, again, little cog in a big machine. Um, but that, yeah, that helps. So, kind of giving giving writers more power and agency, but also getting teams as a whole to kind of understand storytelling and and their their part in it as well. Um, I remember uh, speaking to a games writer at Sony who would encourage her team to 
actually go along to screen screenwriting lectures or like Robert McKee's story, for example, um, and just kind of learn about storytelling and, and kind of understand how their particular de- develop, um, department could uh, contribute to storytelling. And that's sort of, um, you know, I, I'm f- friends with Amy Hennig and we often kind of talk about issues with, with storytelling in games. Um, and certainly... Uh, you know, Naughty Dog have been able to do what they've done because the whole team supports the story. You know, animation, art, audio—they're all they all realise that they're part of storytelling and they support it. It's not kind of just one little group of writers who are responsible for the story and no one else kind of cares or supports them. It's very difficult to do when when that that's the case. Um, so getting yeah, understanding that the story is actually everywhere in games. It's not just the writer bit. It's yeah, you know, animation, art, level design. Um, well, it's what you said before about the fact that because we can't, as game, you can't, as game designers, regulate the exact pace throughout the player will take it. There has to be more than just what's said and what's seen. Yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, we're still working out kind of how how to do it, and there's a lot of great great experiments happening along the way I think absolutely well um, yeah giving more agency and more power to the writers and getting them in earlier and attaching more importance to them I am fully behind these (laughs) endeavours and I say that as a writer just as an aside I've noticed that there are in most of your top projects I'm not sure about Overlord I've not played it I'm so sorry uh, Heavenly Sword Mirror's Edge and Tomb Raider strong central two female narratives going on where it's kind of a sisterly relationship well it's definitely obvious sisterly in, in the terms of uh, Faith and Kate well, it, it's very complex in terms of Noriko and Kite that really doesn't happen in games all that much it doesn't happen in films all that much yeah I mean it's, it's sort of um, it is quite rare and I, that you know, I, I, I've just started Brothers um, which uh, looks like it's going to be really really interesting mm-hmm. um and it, it is weird that, that actually I've worked on a lot of games with sisters in because I'm an only child and so for some reason I always end up watching a sister game so um, yeah Faith and Kate and Noriko and Kai had a sort of adopted they were uh, Kai was the, uh, Noriko's adopted sister yeah. and even even in the Overlord games there is a sister uh, the sister's in there as well nice. I don't know how it happens it just it just seems to um, I think it's I think the industry is, is sort of moving a little bit towards um, exploring relationships that are not about boy-girl love, yeah. um, which, which tended to be that if it was about love, it was boy-girl love. That was it. And um, I think we games, you know, there, there's been a move as male ga- game designers grow up and have kids to have more paternal um, relationships depicted, whether that is. Mm. In Bioshock Infinite, or in Last of Us, Last of Us, yeah. or uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, what were the other good examples of? Uh, well, I guess uh, Bioshock Two as well had a sort of paternalistic angle to it as well. So I think that you know, as the, as the industry matures in terms of storytelling, they are looking at for different ways of cap, you know tapping into to the kind of emotions that unite us really and the commonality of mankind and that it's just not you know that we can do things that are not necessarily about boy girl love but it can be familial relationships and the the, uh, the difficulties and traumas and wonderfulness of that uh, and you know certainly that was the the particularly the relationship between well I guess between Faith and Kate and, and between um, uh 
Laura and Sam? Um, yeah, there's been a lot. There's been a lot talked about the relationship between Laura and Sam, and, and um, I know Gail's been been doing a little bit more about it in the comics. Um, but yeah, you know, just sort of female friendships depict, depicting that on uh, in games is quite rare as well. Um, and again, it, it's, it gets rare in movies. You know, stories about women and are, are you know, it's sadly in the minority um, and you know I've been very lucky to be able to work on the, the games I have I've not necessarily gone out there going I must find projects with, with female leads I've just they've sort of found me for, for very different reasons and through very different routes um, but I don't I, I don't think there's any other games writer that has worked male or female that has worked on three different female led titles yeah don't, can't can't think of any let's bring to so and that and um, that's pretty cool. Uh, I've I've got the the covers of Edge with Lara, Nimiko, and Faith on that my my fiance got nice. uh, framed for at Christmas. And I looked at that and thought, yeah, that, that's kind of cool. I like that. Um, but yeah, it's just explore exploring different relationships, and, and you know that's what we kind of need to do. Otherwise, it's just going to become boring. And if you look at things like Gone Home, for mm. example. There's so much more we can do than it's just than just what has been traditionally done in the past. The sort of you know boy girl love or or, or, or sort of mid twenties white gravity voiced um, Johnny Template I call him yeah, yeah or I call him um, uh, Whitey McStubbly face. That's pretty much the same guy. <laughs> yes, I, I know him well. Um, and it's uh, yeah, the industry seems to be slowly moving away from that. Um, but it's still. But he's our life raft. We can't let go of Whitey McStubbly face. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we we kind of talk a lot about how female characters are, are um, so poorly represented. But if you look at minority characters, mm. that e- oh, it's God, yeah. even worse. Um, and that get doesn't get the the kind of um, time that you know the, the sc- and time and discussion that the female characters do. And they, I I know. Um, there's been there's a great talk. Uh, I think it's Manvia um, at uh, GDC. They have a great talk about uh, you know rep- better representation in games, and you know that's something actually Bioware has been very good at. Uh, so I, I think hopefully we'll see that more. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you probably saw the the old um, Penny Arcade report. Mm-hmm. Uh, story about how female-led games don't sell as well, but then they don't get as marketed as well either. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Tomb Raider has now sold over six million copies in a year. So I think that's starting to disprove that, that you know it's they can't be big sellers and they don't appeal to uh, men because you know that we've had great feedback from from both male and female gamers on on Tomb Raider. So um, it's kind of it's ludicrous that we're at a stage where the developers for Remember Me had such a hard time putting a female protagonist in their game and got told that, you know, they couldn't do that. Oh, that's Capcom, isn't uh, it? Yeah. yeah. And, and likewise, kind of Elizabeth being relegated to the back of Infinite's box and things like that, and which is why it was so cool to see Ellie up front on, on The Last of Us mm. box. In fact, even in front of, of Joel as well. Um and it, it's weird that those things are, are still an issue for us. It makes our industry come across as very archaic and slightly Victorian. <laughs> yes. Did you play Heavy Rain? I played a bit of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, you know what, if you're feeling uncomfortable about in any way talking Yang about um, David Cage's writing, uh, don't worry about it. But <laughs> I can say that Madison's writing drove me crazy. I don't know. I, I can't remember much about the writing of Madison, although I quite liked the cop in Fahrenheit. However, I didn't really understand what, how she could be both claustrophobic and a cop. That would seem somewhat of a um, a difficulty. But I like, well, I, but I was burnt quite badly by Fahrenheit um, in terms of I did I did play it all and like for the last half or certainly the last third of the game, it was like oh yeah, it's, it's yeah. ridiculous. I have they're just they're, they're just making it up as they go along. <laughs> um, the the term is it goes to bollocks. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I don't, and it, that really angered me, and I know some of my games writing friend uh, angered me. Um, well, it's probably quite a good thing you didn't play all the way through Heavy Rain then, because it also goes to bollocks. Yeah, um, I, I don't. There were some sort of genius bits in, in Fahrenheit, but it, <laughs> they, they were few and far between. Yeah, I have that, and I've got I've got Beyond, and I'm kind of glad that. Um, someone like David Cage exists that are doing oh, yeah, yeah. games like that. I think there is important that that's you know play, there's that diversity out there and players do get that choice. Um, and yeah, then, then there's a dialogue and discussion and people do think more about performance and character and journey and things like. That. I mean, I'm glad Stanley Kubrick existed. That doesn't mean that yeah. several of his movies don't drive me nuts. Um, so, given what you've worked on so far. What would your dream project be? Something that you haven't had a, a crack at yet, but you think you might like to? It could be an existing series, or you could have one already, you know, just ready for anybody to pick up. Um, with it, without going into too much detail, mm-hmm. it used to be Thief. It's not anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> Having worked on the Thief game, it's not anymore. Um, <laughs> it used to be Thief. Yeah, that's it. So it used to be Thief. Um, that that was uh, a complicated project <laughs> uh, without going so to, diplomatic yeah it's complicated challenging we understand we can read between the lines yeah um, and so probably um, if they ever did another vampire um, vampire of the masquerade bloodline wow oh that's interesting um, I really really loved um, what they did there and I love the fact that there was pretty much one guy behind all the writing of it um, and uh, I would uh, love to, to they, he, he doesn't need me and he kindly says that one day we'll work together but um, I'd love to work on uh, Psychonauts 2 um, if Tim would just give me like one little character one little character just in the corner of my own um, I love I love Psychonauts um, uh, uh, Ragnar Tornquest as well um, I love his work and, and you know, m- might possibly be doing some, some stuff with him in the future uh, and so I've, I've kind of been lucky like I always wanted to work on a Bioshock uh, project and although I did in a very sort of kind of peripheral way on, on Infinite um, it was it was good to kind of be involved a little bit with that um, and see uh, you know get get to see a little bit of Ken's inner workings mm. um, so I don't know if th- those they're, they're kind of like fantasy fantasy um, licenses now it's ones that I don't know whether they'd ever happen but if they did yeah, yeah. that's what I'd, like Dungeon Keeper 3 mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a Dungeon Keeper 3 Bloodlines 2 Psychonauts 2 they would be my main ones, I think. Nice. Excellent. 
We will do some quick fire questions. You can give okay. really short answers to, and then we'll let you go. I'm really bad at short answers. Okay. Well, that's okay. Well, you can give long answers if you want. These are our five questions yeah. that we ask everyone. Um, so, what would your last meal and movie be? Oh God, I'm really bad at choosing. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Time Bandits and some kind of really good curry. We had some really good uh, Tesco. <laughs> there, was, there was a big silence there when I said really good curry. I'm just trying to, I want to recommend a good curry. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that my, my local. Tesco finest chicken masala. They're awesome. Um, my, well, my lo- there's a uh, local Indian place that does a really oh, good, nice. good prawn curry. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bull, it's a bulky style curry. It's really nice. Ooh. Um, uh, yeah, I'm big, and time big, bandits. Yeah, big fan of Indian food, big fan of time bandits. Yeah, I was talking about... Actually, I, I just did um, something for SFX where I think they were, they were uh, getting um, known people in the industry to talk about... And, and you know, the, the whole fantasy industry, really, to talk about their, their kind of first um, favourite movie from a fantasy... Uh, fa- favourite sort of bit or scene from a, a fantasy movie or, or something that really st- stuck with them at a young age. And mine was um, the dwarfs coming out of the wardrobe in, in Time Bandits. Nice. So how, how would you have been when you saw that one? Was it? Uh, so that was... Was that 81 Time Bandits? Uh... Is it 86? Is it 81 or 86? Um, I didn't think it was as... It, it was... De- Definitely 80s because I remember writing a uh, top 10 fantasy films of the 80s. Um, 81. 81. Okay, so I would have been. Sean Connery still had brown, well, dark hair. Yeah, and I, I remember writing a top 10 films of the 80s um, piece for Hot Dog Magazine when I used to do some work as a film reviewer as well. And so, um, yeah, I remember putting it in that, although they ended up dropping the. Of the eighties bit, and it was just top ten fantasy films, and it just looked like I was obsessed with the eighties. But it was—it's <laughs> it's amazing how many good fantasy films came out in the eighties. Of them, I'd say that Time Bandits is, um, you yeah, know, one of the best. Um, the next question is: Doc Brown turns up in the DeLorean. Where and when do you go, and how long do you stay? Oh gosh, these are quite difficult. Quite, quite difficult questions to just come up with one answer for. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I think I would have liked to have been present in um, the villa that Mary Shelley stayed in um, with Percy Shelley and uh, Lord Byron and um, I can't remember, I think the gentleman who came up with a story called The Vampire. Where that night... In, I think it was was it Ken Russell that did a film called Gothic, where it depicted that night. Not the greatest film in the world, but um, yeah, that night in in the in the villa in I think Switzerland, where um, they were kind of set the task to come up with a horror story. Um, I think I just would have liked to have been there for that. And Mary Shelley uh, came up, you know, had a dream, came up with with Frankenstein, um, and that I, I was a big uh, fan of. Um, Mary Shelley and, and still am actually I wrote my dissertation on, on her and, and Frankenstein um, at university and so I would have 
I was very impressed with her as not only a writer but as a, a, a an inquisitive human being as well. She you know, was very interested in science experiments and she travelled a lot as well and that was quite rare for, for women of, of that day and age. So, yeah, I would have basically liked to have been Mary Shelley's travelling companion. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, if it, de- definitely Victorian England around that time. Um yeah, just a, a travelling companion of, of, of either Mary Shelley or Ada Lovelace, but probably probably Mary Shelley, just because I know know more about her. And, and you know, she had a father who was a, a writer as well, so I kind of you know I, I kind of have a lot of empathy for her. I do like the idea of sitting quietly in the corner while historical meetings take place and just observing. That's that's yeah something which I'd not really thought of before. Um, Actually, now that you mention it, there was this one time, apparently, when Billy Connolly, John Cleese, and Spike Milligan all shared the same hotel room. <laughs> and they made each other laugh so much they had to crawl downstairs the next day. I would have liked to have been in that room. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a good combination. Yeah, it's, it's the Villa Diatate, which is where the, they had that, that famous night. So I think I would have liked to have been there. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, Mary Shelley's travelling companion. That's that's one. Nice. That'll do. That'll do for an off the top of my head. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, who in number three? Who in the world would you give a superpower of your choice? Now, originally this was what superpower would you like, but we thought no, because people can actually give it to someone. Wow, this is really hard. Exactly. It's it's designed to make people think. Uh, As opposed to what's your favourite colour? Oh. No, that's too hard. That's too hard. What Can answers I... have we had so far, Sharon? While she's thinking, um, I'm just trying to remember. Somebody said we I had... would. I would give somebody who's been trying for years to find the cure for cancer the ability to cure cancer um, miraculously, because they would have the. Um, uh, the they would. They would have been. Obviously, for personal reasons, trying to do it for a long, long time, and thus would have and the responsibility would have the, to use yeah, it. They would have the means to get it to the people who who hmm. needed it. Um, so, someone said uh, for for kind of somewhat selfish reasons, I would probably go for that, but but for Alzheimer's, of course, uh, because of course. It, affects, it affects my family so so deeply, and and many many families as well. So. Um, of, of things that are personal to me that I would like to, to be cured, I'd, I'd say that Alzheimer's is, is probably the top one. I know that's a bit of a that's a bit of a downer. Like no, no, that's, start with something a bit more. That's over- that's totally relevant. Yeah, no, that's. I, I would I would also give somebody that ability. So, yeah, so so someone who has uh, you know, researching Alzheimer's, give them the cure to Alzheimer's, and, and make sure my father is top of the list. Yeah, good answer, Sharon. Number four. Okay. Um, in your entertainment of choice, is there a recurring theme that you can't seem to get enough of? Oh, yeah. I, lo- I was thinking about this the other day. I love the... And I, w- I wouldn't... I was, I'm not sure whether it necessarily reoccurs in what I choose, but it, I certainly... When, when I see those scenes happening, I go, I, I go, ooh! And I love the kind of getting the band together scenes. Mm. <laughs> and, like, the heist group... The band, what assembling the gang? See, mm. I, lo- I love those. So, like, it comes from Blues Brothers, from you know the, the bit where they sort of track down where all the former uh, the bandmates are, are now and what sort of circumstances they're living in. I love those. Um, uh, so that's that's probably one I like. Um, the, the, the reoccurring uh, theme in my entertainment choices usually end up being. 
written by Joss Whedon tends to be their reoccurring. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so uh, your ideal movie would be getting the Serenity crew back together. Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm such a big fan of, uh, in particular, Buffy, uh, which I kind of watch annually. Um, also, and, getting the Scooby gang back together, then. Yeah, the Scooby gang probably more... So, I, start I, I, with I, Xander travelling the world, tracking down everybody. Yeah, I do, I do like... Well, I guess that's kind of what they've done in the comics, although I've not, I've not sort of read all of them. Of course, yeah. Um... But nothing really filled the, the Buffy void, I think. Uh, Supernatural came close. Um, those are the ones I've seen. Um, but yeah, what of Twilight? I, I, did that come close? No, not in the least. <laughs> it's so far in the opposite direction. We actually uh, had to review that. It's coming soon, folks. Uh, uh, no, no, uh, no. Like Twilight has no sense of humour. In fact, uh, no. Okay. Uh, what do you think of the Hunger Games? Um, I've only seen the first one. I've not seen the second one. Mm. I like. I mean, they're very earnest as well. But I do. I I do like them. Uh, well, I like the first one. Uh, you know, I thought it was quite enjoyable. They're very long, um, but you know, they, I think they're, they're they're very entertaining to watch. Mm. Uh, much more than than Twilight. They have uh, an obvious social conscience there. Mm. I haven't got a Hunger Games agenda here. Just but uh, we. We're going to review them fairly soon as well, and by the by the third book, it gets very grim and dark. And, yeah. and, and uh, I mean, I'm glad. I, I think you know, young adults should have a lot grim and dark. Mm. Uh, I think that's um, I think that's good. Uh, well, actually, it's, it it wrestles themes of what a warrior has to give up. So, oh, yeah, yeah, there's some relevance there. Actually, it was interesting what you were saying earlier about um, the. The, what a warrior has to give up to, and and also with the uh, female female relationships, we reviewed the Wolverine yesterday, and oh. um, that's coming soon as well, folks. That's got that there too in spades. I would never have expected it from a Wolverine movie, but oh, okay. uh, they, they got it right. Yeah. I've seen that, and that's they got they had female relationships. Oh yeah, um, uh, there's uh, two prominent female characters. And they go through the story, and it's not just about Wolverine. Oh, good. And they've got other stuff at stake, and they care about each other as well. And then they, they don't have that kind of, ah, you should never have trusted me. I am woman and thus untrustworthy <laughs> thing, which happens far too flipping often. Well, that's, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of, of the Wolverine as being one to have that, but that's all. It's, it's nice to get snuck in. Oh, the, the ending turns to bollocks unfortunately but and it also has a terrible female character that we can just ignore but um, yeah recommended The Wolverine alright thank you and lastly which technological development and it can't be to do with Alzheimer's do you most want to occur within your lifetime oh you could also say Alzheimer's I'll let you have that one no well oh god um frankly since that one's fairly personal to me as well that's one of mine yeah the overcoming. Uh, no, I mean, you could argue that's not really a technological development. A yeah, medical development, I suppose. Yeah. But, uh, um, it's ho- so hard to know because. Um, you can go for a fun one and just say hoverboards yeah. if you want. Hoverboards would be great. Um, totally. I remember when I was uh, a kid going, right, so 2015, I'm going to be 35, maybe still flexible enough to ride on hoverboards? <laughs> maybe? Yeah, I think. Uh, hoverboard seems like it could be plausible. Yeah, expensive um, but plausible. Neck breaking but plausible. 
Yeah, I, I yeah. Now you keep saying things, I keep going. Oh yeah, that's good. I'll go for that. I would say the lightsaber as well, but uh, bad things would happen. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the Millennium Falcon. Robot cats. You know, I wrote a robot cat once, and it was a good idea. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, robot robot cats. Just yeah. Like, or, or or maybe like. I mean, uh, technically, they have robot cats. Just better ones. Yeah, be- better robot cats, or, or more kind of like that you can merge a robot and your actual cat. It's like a cyborg so they, cat. A, yeah, a cyborg cat. Yeah, that's that's very better. So they would just kind of live a, live a bit longer, and they could you know like open their own tins of food. And we stuff. can rebuild him. We have the technology. <laughs> yeah, or you could program them not to ignore the cat flap. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, or even cat cloning. Like my my mother, like I think my mother read about cat cloning, and she sometimes gone to my dad. Oh, I think we should get this cat cloned. <laughs> I don't think it ever happens really, but you know, when, when you get a really good cat, yeah, yeah, you know, that when it really does all the, the things a cat should do, um, yeah, he, he kind of wanted to just kind of preserve that. Then we definitely had some cats in the Pratchett household which you would have cloned. Or turned into cyborgs. But then you have the question of could a cat's soul be cloned as well? Because you'd have it's feasibly its body. I can, I can. We've got a cat. We had a cat that I would love to have back, um, but he had such a gentle, wonderful soul that I, I, it would. What you'd be snatching it back out of the ether to put into this body, or what? Well, it's my technological fantasy. <laughs> okay, okay. So it would just clone the soul too. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Rihanna, it has been wonderful having you on. Seriously, oh, thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Sharon, do you want to wrap us up? Okay, well, that's all about the time... <clears throat> I'm going to start that again. You <laughs> <laughs> even wrote it down for you. I know, I'm sorry, I read it the wrong way around. Okay, well, that's about all the time we've got this week. Rihanna, thank you so much for joining us for this one. You've been at the top of our list of guests for a very long time, and it's been both an honour and a pleasure having you here. And I have kept quiet in the main part because I've been trying very hard not to go all fangirly. Thank you very, very much for coming on. You're very welcome. Coming up in the next few weeks, we go deep on Marvel once again with reviews of Captain America the Winter Soldier and each of the Spider-Man and X-Men movies. So it's good night to you all. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural Handshake Complete. Complete. I have never had so much as now. All my life I've been alone. my death with no one to know. I would look into the huts and the tents of others in the coldest dark and I would see figures holding each other in the night. But I always passed by. You and I, we have warmth. That's so hard to find in this world. someone else pass by in the night. Let us take the world by the throat and make it give us what we desire. A famous explorer once said... 
that the extraordinary is in what we do, not who we are. When life flashes before us, we find something. Something that keeps us going. Something that pushes us. character that I voted for who nobody else did I think maybe she got two or three was Noriko in uh, Heavenly Sword kind of the opposite of Elena extremely strong Uh, you know signs of vulnerability but somebody who has got a actually no maybe she is kind of similar to Elena she's got a job to do she does it she's self-sacrificing literally she she pushes herself through and you root for her the whole time. And she's got this... Both of the characters are personified by the actors in the game using performance capture. It's something that I really want to see used later on. In fact, if the votes had come in a, bit, a little bit later, I probably would have voted for Trip from Enslaved as well. Yeah, that's Maybe Monkey. Thinking about Noriko as well, she, if you actually compare it to someone like um, Uncharted, she's kind of more of the, the character of Nathan Drake and um, her sister, who's, you know, she's constantly trying to look out and look after it's kind of like Elena's character it's kind of like a, a flip reverse uh, oh do you mean Kai she's not actually yeah, her Kai. blood sister there's a, a weird kind of Xena relationship going on between those two but at the same time that's very subtly done and I, I, I can't I can believe and it's very sad that Kai wasn't on this oh, list as well Kai is a fantastic character in fact, you know what? Number 24, Duke Nukem, he's out. I am the king of the world, baby. Duke Nukem is not in this what? fucking Let's... list. Kai from Heavenly Sword. My gun's bigger than yours. Let's talk about Duke Nukem anyway. No. Um, he's bollocks. He is a fucking walking testicle. Don't worry, girls. There's plenty of Duke to go around. He is a, just a ball of of cliches and shitty one-liners. It's a good day to die. You're beautiful when you're dying. Confucius say... Die. I could do this all day. Fuck Duke Nukem in his fucking ass. Get rid of him. We don't need Duke Nukem in this damn age. 
I'm surprised he's picked up as many votes as he has now. Because I get the joke. He didn't. The joke Kai was... did. Kai takes all the votes. <laughs> but the, the joke was funny back then. I like big guns, and I cannot lie. And, and maybe this is us just being that kind of, oh, you know, games move forward, and how dare people, you know, kind of remember the way that, you know, you know characters like this. But I think he has a place with on this list. I'm just surprised he's quite as high as 24. Say hello to my little friend. <sighs> It's, it's an incredible. I mean, I think once again, that's that's kind of just you know thinking back in, into your past and maybe games that you know you spent a lot of time with, and, and Duke kind of conjures up that kind of you know remembrance. But yeah, it, it, I think his day is coming. I, I think you know Duke Nukem Forever will prove quite how far we've moved on from that kind of humor. So. You'd think they'd learn. I guess we'll see. But I, I'm more than happy to put Kai in his place. Even yeah, though that's totally no. Seriously, because the. the, the... <laughs> The even though, though it's tongue in cheek, the objectifying of women in the Duke Nukem games and the shake it baby uh, it's, it's uh, versus how empowering Heavenly Sword is, fuck him. I go where I please, and I please where I go. Kai and Noriko share places to kick Duke Nukem's ass off this list. Squeal like a pig. What do you feel about Duke Nukem? Finley man. Nah. Really quite indifferent to the character. I never really thought there was much of a character there. Just as a stereotypical kind of man's man. Drink beer, look at boobs, smoke cigars, kick ass. Only he's got this groovy thing from Ash in Evil Dead 2. And that's just... Groovy. You know, funny back in 1997. I love the smell of bird crap in the morning. Okay, so Duke, you're off the list. You talking to me? No, no, no. Get out of here. We don't want you. No, I'm really pissed off. You've had your day. Go. I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to kick your ass. Go away. Hang your head in shame, dude. You invincible headshot scripted cheater. Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. I hate to kick my own ass, but it's got to be done. Hmm, so there is life after death. Noriko has spent her life in the belief that she should have been born a son to her father and thus a worthy bearer of the heavenly sword. Kai, however, witnessed something so horrible that she became mentally divergent and regards her original personality in the third person so as to distance herself from the pain. It's no accident that the man in charge of performance capture was Andy Serkis, better known to the world as Gollum. Serkis also plays Bohan in Heavenly Sword, yet another character who deserves to be on the list. It's tasty. The others. Father. Where are they? Gone. Dead. Not dead. Gone. Gone where? Master Shen said I must hide. And did you? Yes. No. I begged. Please, Kai, you have to tell me what happened. I got bored. I climbed a tree. I saw those soldiers again. And? They had Master Shen and some of the others. Did you see where they were taking them? This was once a place of tranquility and learning. Now Bohan has ravaged its beauty with his mark of corruption. I can feel the suffering of my father and our clansmen there at Bohan's mercy. And this I know. Some men show no mercy. Kai. Hmm? 
have to find father. You keep watch till we return. We may need you to play twin twang. Yes, Mariko. We'll find a place to hide. Won't we? <laughs> What was the reason of the wheel of pain? What they uh, um, they're grinding grain, you know. Grinding grain, okay. And the yeah. grain was for food and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, okay. And where were they getting the grain from? Whatever happened to Ben Davidson? He's around somewhere. Why didn't you know uh, do a, a, a close up on her when she was talking there? Look at the chain. Yeah. What do you call it? The ma chain mail. Chain yeah. mail. Yeah, exactly. What do you call those? The demons. The demons. I know, I but then how do you keep them in focus? Well, I, by getting far enough back from him. Oh, from, from me. Does the kid wear lipstick or what is that? Yeah, here's the making of the sword. This whole movie has to do with that. Now he's putting it in the snow. That's me when I was young. Here, here's the hypnotizing that he does. Look at it. She's totally hypnotized. Then she separates her neck. And here's the guy that buys me now. Then I break his arm. Right. Just the pounding him with the head and yeah. then breaking his head. Now I'm enjoying it already. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. That's funny. He was laughing. He didn't laugh long. No. Oh, this when I get to know the wolf witch. Yeah. Which was another great scene. Yeah. You know, the way she looks sexy and seductive and then she seduces me into this uh into her little thing and uh oh, that's where I met Jerry yeah. Lopez. Your God lives underneath him. Ah. That's funny. Yeah, Look at me sleeping there. Oh, that is funny. I know she jumps. And Dina said, Ah, you're a gross out of the people. This wolf jumping on my back. Oh. Password for Armory. Get lost. Hmm. Maybe I'll hit your weak point for massive damage. Monkey Peaches. Huh? The password. It's Monkey Peaches. Thanks. 